open up your Bible, if you have one, to uh, probably the most familiar of all Christmas texts, uh, Luke chapter 2. Uh, that's where we are going to be uh, this morning. We were in Luke chapter 1 last Sunday, if you're able to be with us. Um, but we're continuing our Advent series, and we'll uh, have the last Sunday of it be next Sunday. That's the last Sunday before Christmas. And then we are going to have a Christmas Eve service, if you were wondering about that. We're going to do that at 6.30 on the 24th. Uh, so that evening, if you're in town, uh, we are going to try to live stream it if you're not. But if you're in town, we'd love to have you worship with us. Uh, it, I did want to note, as you invite people to potentially come with you, make sure, especially if they're not here Sunday by Sunday, that they know how we're operating as a church right now with distancing and masks, things like that, so they don't, uh, aren't surprised as they come in. Uh, don't want to spring something on them. But we'd love to have a a lot of guests have your relatives your co-workers neighbors people to come here uh, at a, a time of year where some are more inclined to listen at least to the word of God and to hear that story of Jesus would love to have many of them uh, be with us or to watch with us uh, that evening but uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2 this morning, and it is uh, the, the straightforward narrative of the birth of Jesus. Uh, and we'll get to that in just a moment, but it, it made me think about the birth of my own children uh, and the handful of times that I've been able to be a part of them uh, be coming into the world. And it's a profound uh, experience to be part of and to witness. Uh, but one thing I was thinking in particular was the difference of the memory of it between my wife and myself. Uh, and I inquired with, for obvious reasons, we have different memories. I had the far easier end of the deal, that is for sure. Um, but even how we recall even b details of the day or the morning or the night or the process uh, leading up to their birth and the things that followed. And her memory is far better than mine is of those. Uh, even though I was there throughout, even though I was right by her side throughout all of them, uh, her memory is far superior to mine in both quantity of facts and I think vividness of the experience of what it was like for her. And I asked around if that was the case for other people and uh, there's mixed, uh, mixed answers that I got. Sometimes the father or grandparents or whoever's in the room remember it far better than the mother. And I don't know why it is that Stephanie remembers better than me. I could speculate. I, there's some reasons I could guess. She remembers things in general better than I do. Uh, that's probably reason number one. And I don't feel bad necessarily about not remembering everything that I wish that I could, but I do wish I had better recall. I, I wish that I could place myself back in those moments and, and take in, soak in some more of the details and the experiences of what was taking place because, and I think you may be able to relate with me on this, I think sometimes even the most profound, even the most wonderful, even the most deep experiences that we have as human beings, sometimes even those memories just fade into the background of our lives, kind of into the history of our lives or kind of the lore of our lives gone by then. Sometimes we don't really give attention to them, let alone remember them, celebrate them, uh, and they can lose their significance. They could even be forgotten over time. And I, I was wondering this week, is that okay? Or not and to what degree should we actually try to grab on to the things that we witness God doing and try to commit them to our memory and commit them uh, in our hearts to be able to, to remember them uh, to, to celebrate them to call them back to mind even in the future and as we come to this text today I think we're going to see uh, God speak to that question 
uh, of how should we strive to remember his workings with us, his personal dealings with us, the things we witness him do in our life. How should we try to remember those? How should we try to commit those uh, into our hearts and minds for further use in the future? And so we're going to read this narrative of the birth of Jesus. We're going to start at Luke chapter 2 verse 1 and we're going to go up through verse 20 this morning. Um, and I want became a human being to come into our world, to rescue us, to save us. Uh, we will take time to marvel at that and wonder at that. But I also want us to pay particular attention then to his mother as well, uh, to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and how she, we're going to see how she treasured up these things in her heart. She pondered them in her heart. And I, I think we'll see in her example some instruction to us of how, to, how we should engage with, the, as we have experiences of God's working in our life, how we should try to commit those things to our own hearts, our own minds, uh, for further use in the future. So I'm going to read this in a few chunks today. I'm going to start in verses 1 through 7, and I'm going to read that and hit pause and make sure we're up to speed on what's happening here, because this is one of the most probably familiar stories uh, that we have in the scriptures to us, but it's also one we can sometimes just read through and not really pay a lot of attention to. So I want to read it point out a few things, and then we'll read the second half of this narrative as well. But trust by now, uh, you have found Luke chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Luke recorded this. He said, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. We'll pause there. Uh, just so we make sure we know what is happening here, what Luke is, is explaining to us. We see this story where we're picking it up. Uh, the first few verses talk about this travel to Bethlehem uh, by Mary and Joseph and by their baby who's soon to be born. Uh, in verses 1 to 5, you see uh, why they went to Bethlehem and you see that they actually go. And so there's this ruler uh, of the Roman Empire uh, at that time, Caesar Augustus, and he decrees that everybody in his uh, his territory, uh, everyone in the world, it was almost as if he ruled over the entirety of the world as they knew it, that they needed to go back to their, the town of their ancestors to be registered, to be counted. Uh, we don't know exactly why he was doing that, but we do know that the God of the universe, the real God of the world, the real ruler of the world, was using even the decree of this powerful human king to bring about a prophecy that he had given long ago, that this Messiah was going to be born in this little town of Bethlehem. Because uh, Mary and Joseph weren't typically in Bethlehem. They, they lived in Nazareth, around Nazareth. But because of this decree, they go to the town that God had said long before that the Messiah would be born in. So they travel quite a distance for that day and age. It would have, to us, it may feel like nothing. It's about 90 miles or so uh, from Nazareth to Bethlehem. They're going probably by animal uh, and foot uh, to Bethlehem. And so maybe about from here to Indianapolis, if you could imagine that, without cars or, or bikes or anything like that. They, uh, nine months pregnant, uh, Mary and Joseph travel to Bethlehem. 
to be registered there. And then verses six through seven, you have the birth of Christ. Uh, this most profound of events is, is summarized in two short verses, verses six and seven. Is it just, I, I wonder, I marvel at how simple this account is from Luke. When you think about what is going on here, that God the Son, the one who created the world, is about to enter the world as a human being, and Luke throws a couple sentences at it. Like the, the, the actual birth itself. It's surprisingly simple and straightforward. It says, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And so it's very matter-of-fact, very simple. Uh, and I would note for us, there's going to be some kind of fanfare and pomp and circumstance here in just a moment with these shepherds and these angels that come out outside of Bethlehem. But just put, place yourself, we're finding out that, that they're in a stable even, but place yourself there for a moment and realize there was nothing fancy nothing no lights there's no there was no halo over baby Jesus as he came out of the womb there was no I don't think like a light shining down from heaven through some hole in the roof of the stable to shine on him it would have been a normal birth umbilical cord all the things that that would have come with a normal human birth and I think Luke keeps that part very simple to instruct us on the reality that Jesus was a and became a full human being just like us that he was born just like each of us have been born and it seems so it seems very simple and straightforward until you get to the word manger Verse 7, like it's simple, but it's very normal uh, that, that they were there, time came to give birth, she gives birth to her son, wraps him in claws, that would have been very normal, and laid him in a manger. Like we have heard that so many times, it kind of loses its magnitude maybe, but a manger was like a feeding trough for stable animals. So we learned quickly there, we connect the dots that they weren't uh, there. And that he tells us there was no room for them in the inn of the town. And so the place that they're allotted to stay is this stable. And the son of God, as he enters into the world like we did, he is laid not in some nice cot, not in some nice bed, not some soft thing. He's laid probably on hay in a feeding trough for animals. I don't want us to read past that without remembering or, or maybe knowing for the first time the humility this shows us of our Savior Jesus, the creator of the universe, the one who had angels praising him and worshiping him, not just became a human being, but became a human being born to poor, powerless Mary and Joseph who couldn't persuade people even to get a place in the inn. They're put out in a stable and he's laid in a feeding trough for animals be in our cultural equivalent I was trying to think of something like it kind of like maybe a child of our president someday if they have a child while they're in office being born in some garage in like rural West Virginia kind of near the capital but up in the hills or something like that's what it would have been like like that this king of the universe the savior of the world being laid in a feeding trough and I wonder what the thoughts of Mary and Joseph were like they had the wonder of having their first child be born, but I wonder if, if Joseph, as many still had not heard of the angelic visits and whatnot, if Mary, again, might have questions in her own heart of, like, 
this is the Son of God, right? Like, this is the Messiah. This is the one that, that God said we've waited for for so long. Yet, like, this just seemed very normal. As I've heard of other ladies giving birth, like, this seems just like any other child. Like, what, what is going on? And God did not have to have any fanfare come around the birth of Jesus. He didn't have to send angels, as we're going to see. He didn't have to send any sort of special messages at that point in time. But we're going to see that in his kindness, that, that God does. That he provides further confirmation just outside Bethlehem that day. Not in the stable itself, but even he gives confirmation to these shepherds out in their fields. That something extraordinary has taken place in Bethlehem. This isn't just another baby. It is just another baby in one sense, but it, he's far more than just another baby. And so God is going to have something happen just outside of Bethlehem, something grand and extravagant to accompany the arrival of his son, Jesus. And I want to read that for you because what we're about to read is something that seems to have been seared into the memory of Mary as she heard about it. As she heard what was going outside of, on outside of Bethlehem, it got, what we're about to read got seared into her memory as she heard it. So I want us to hear it, verses 8 through 20, what takes place just outside of Bethlehem. So follow along with me, starting at verse 8. Luke recorded this. He said, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger, and when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So what happens here is, uh, I would call this section, I would summarize it as a visit to the shepherds and then a visit from the shepherds. Uh, there's a visit of an angel that comes to these shepherds outside of Bethlehem. So the scene is this, there's these shepherds, we don't know how many, but there's multiple shepherds who are tending to their flocks outside of Bethlehem. They're taking care of their animals, maybe laying, looking up at the stars, maybe having to tend to a few of them who are being ornery and not sleeping or something, I have no idea. Uh, but they're taking care of their sheep until this angel visits. An angel of the Lord, verse 9, appears to them. And it says that the glory of the Lord shone around them and they're afraid. They're filled with fear. But this angel tries to quickly calm them, fear not. 
and then proclaims this glorious message to them. He, he says to them that he brings them news of great joy that will be for all the people. And the, the thing that he says is the source of joy, the reason that they can have joy and that people all over the world are going to have joy is because of a baby that was just born. Over in Bethlehem, not far from them. They would have very clearly known where that was. He says that there's a baby that's just been born there. And he, it's not just any baby. He says, we've probably heard this so many times, some of us, that we just look over this. This angel says that unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So he, he's saying that this, this child, they don't know all the details, they're not told how it's all going to unfold, but he's saying that there, this child is a savior, he's going to bring salvation to you. He's saying that he's the Christ, like specifically he's the one that God has promised from long ago, this Messiah that you guys have been waiting for was just born in Bethlehem. And he calls him not just Christ, but he calls him Christ the Lord. Like that there's something even extra special about this baby, that he's not just the Messiah, this human Messiah that you've been waiting for, but he's the Lord. He is God. And I cannot even fathom what these shepherds would have been thinking in their minds as they hear this message, but uh, they are told then to go and look for this child, right? To go find him, as they probably would have wanted to anyways. But because so many people were coming to Bethlehem, there was probably other babies that were there, maybe even some that had just been born. We don't know. So he's trying to clarify which baby it is, which one it is that's this Messiah, this Lord that you have been waiting for. And he says, he doesn't tell him like what color hair to look for or what his parents look like or anything like that or, or tell him, hey, go find him in room 210 or whatever, like, like we would at a, a hospital in most day and ages right now. Uh, he tells him to go look for the baby that's in the feeding trough. That's the one. I think the shepherds would have just thought, What? Like they're seeing this angel and these other angels that join him in just a moment, this glorious thing, and they're saying, hey, good news, great joy for all the people. It's this baby that was just born and he's in a feeding trough. Go find him. And this whole host of angels then comes and starts singing glory to God in the highest, peace on earth with whom he's pleased. Pastor Tom, side note, is going to teach and preach on that very text on Christmas Eve. So very much look forward to that. I'm not going to steal his thunder for that. I'll let him elaborate on those verses on Christmas Eve. But there's this visit from a, a group of angels. Usually you see angels appear one at a time in the Bible. Here it says there is a multitude of the heavenly hosts there right outside Bethlehem. And it would have been wonder of wonders that these angels who had worshipped Jesus in heaven worship the son of God and glorifying God so there's this visit to the shepherds but then there's a visit from the shepherds right they actually do what the angel told them to do to go look for this sign to go find this baby that was just born so verses 15 through 20 you see that they go and visit Mary and Joseph so for a moment when the angels leave they kind of talk together as shepherds and I I would have thought it would have been obvious, like, yeah, let's go look for him. Uh, but they confer together, talk for a minute, and then they actually go over to Bethlehem to see this thing that's happened. And verse 16 says that they went with haste and that they found them, that they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. 
But then it says that they relay, they tell what they had heard from the angel, right? They don't just go and kind of peek in be like, wow, there is a baby actually in a manger uh, that was just born. But they actually talk to them. They actually tell them what they had just experienced outside Bethlehem on the hillside with the angels. And so it says, Luke records for us that as they tell this story, as they tell what they just experienced, verse 18 says that everyone who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. So as people are hearing this, I don't know who else they told. Maybe they're in Bethlehem. Maybe they're causing a ruckus. Shepherds may have been kind of these like unruly guys. I don't know. But that maybe there's a scene happening. But somehow they're starting to tell more and more people about what they heard and what they saw. And, it, and people are wondering. They're marveling at this. Like, what is going on? Like, I thought this was just a normal night. Maybe a little more busy than normal for Bethlehem. But uh, something glorious is happening here. And so people are wondering at it. But I would note for you, and this is where we're going to spend a decent bit of our time today. I would note for you what Mary does in verse 19. So it says that everyone who has heard this, verse 18, wonders at what the shepherds told them. Verse 19, though, says that Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. So the shepherds leave after that. They go back to their flock. But Mary treasured up all these things honored them in her heart. There's many times in life when we experience the works of God, that, that we witness things that he's done, we, we observe them in our own life or in other people's lives, and they impact us. We're like, wow, that's amazing, that's wonderful. But then, and we marvel or we wonder at them for a moment, but we kind of, I would say, like sometimes we marvel and we move on. Like, wow, wonderful, that's great. Like, praise God for that. And then we just kind of file it away, maybe in the back of our mind somewhere, but we just move on to the rest of life. And I, I wonder if you can resonate with that experience, because I can. I know there's been times in my life where there are things God has done, things I have witnessed, things I've experienced that he has done. And I'm in the moment, and maybe even for a day or a few days afterwards, I'm sincerely impressed by it. I'm intrigued by it. I, I, I think, wow, like, what a God. I serve but then I carry on with life and I, it's like I just forget and I, I just let it fall into the background of my life but Mary here she does not do that she treasures up the things that she's seeing she treasures up the things that she's hearing she she places that word has this idea of like preserving something like not just letting it kind of go into your mind and heart or through your eyes and ears and just letting it pass on through, but trying to capture it, trying to preserve it and hold on to it. That's why we say that she, uh, that she treasured up these things. And as human beings, I, there's a fascinating reality about us that we have what people call short-term memory and long-term memory. You're probably familiar with these terms. Uh, there's things that we just naturally remember in the short term. We need to remember a phone number to dial or an email address to write down or an address to go to. Like, we can file away some things in short-term memory, but long-term memory is a whole different thing. Like where we transfer the things that we see, that we hear, that we smell, that we taste, uh, we transfer those things into like a longer storage uh, form where, where we can recall them, we can bring them back to mind. I can't remember 
a million phone numbers I've dialed over the years, right? But I can remember like my home phone number when I was a little kid because I, I needed to know those things over and over and over again. So I committed them to long-term memory. And that's like what Mary is trying to do here, that I believe that she is trying to not just let these be fleeting experiences that she sees, but she's wanting to grab onto them. She's wanting to keep them and preserve them. That's why she's treasuring them up. And I would note for you, and we don't have time to get into it in detail, but this was a pattern in Mary's life. Like if you look just in this same chapter down at the end of Luke chapter 2, look at verse 52, or 51, excuse me. It says that this is a scene when Jesus is 12. We don't have a whole lot of material to go on of Jesus' childhood, but this is one story we do have when he's 12 years old. He go, his family goes to Jerusalem uh, Mary and Joseph leave him there and don't realize it, which always, I've said this before, but it always makes me feel like a better parent when I know Mary and Joseph left the Son of God and didn't realize it for a couple of days. Uh, but they come back, and Jesus is in the temple, and people are asking questions, and he's talking and dialoguing with uh, people in the temple, and they're very impressed. And Mary and Joseph, who are understandably alarmed, have this conversation with him, and then Jesus, as a 12-year-old who's starting to slowly grow into and toward manhood, he returns back home with them and submits to them in everything. Uh, his mother and father, he submits to them in everything. And it says that when Mary witnesses this, we don't know what Joseph did with it, but in verse 51 it says, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And hear this, his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And so you see this was a pattern with Mary as she was mothering Jesus, as she was caring for him as a parent. There was, as she experienced the work of God, as she watched her son grow, she was committing these things, trying to place them deep into her mind and heart. She's seeking to treasure them up to be able to have them in the future to bring back forward in her mind. So she treasures them up, but our verse also said, if we go um, back to our original text up earlier in chapter 2, verse 19, also says that she pondered them in her heart. And I think that's getting at how she could actually treasure them up, is that there's this sitting on a thought, like stewing on it, not letting it just kind of come in one eyeball and out the other, or one ear and out the other, but actually thinking about what she's witnessing, actually contemplating it, meditating on what she is seeing unfold. And that's true of us as human beings, that we need repetition to be able to truly treasure them up. And I want you to think about Mary, we talked about this a little bit last week with her visit to Elizabeth, but I want you to think for Mary and Joseph what sort of confirmation this visit from the shepherds would have given to them. Uh, that they just were in this stable, maybe feeling uh, uncertain or confused or feeling discouraged at their state of life, maybe, of, of how poor they were. But then they have these group of shepherds out of nowhere who they would have never met before who say, you will never believe what just happened to us. Like a host of angels just came and told us that your son is the Messiah, like this son who's laying right here, uh, he is the Messiah. This would have been something that would have just blown Mary and Joseph's minds, I think, and further confirmed in their minds and hearts that our son is not just our son, he is the son of God. So Mary is treasuring these things up. She's pondering them in her heart. She's, she's thinking on them, committing them 
to memory. And I, I wanted us to think about our own lives with regard to this. As we have God do things in our own hearts, our own lives, as we experience the things that he does in our world, how do we engage with those things? Because I would say this, that we're not just to be experiencers of God's work, but we're to be witnesses to God's work. Like we're, we're not just intended to watch them happen and be impressed by them, but we're to, to become witnesses of them. To be able to bear witness about the things that God's done for me or for us or that I've seen him do in other people's lives. And if we're to be witnesses on Jesus' behalf, on God's behalf, we need to try to be rememberers, right? First, if we're going to speak about those things, if we're going to tell other people about what God's done, we have to actually remember what he's done. We actually have to be able to, to remember them if we're going to recount them. And so those are the two things I want to talk about in the, the time that remains is remembering the works of God and recounting the works of God. The things that we actually witness him do in our lives. And so we've talked a couple weeks ago about the importance of, as we're in Advent and thinking about hindsight looking back, we talked about the importance of looking back in time at the things God has done for his people in general. Like looking back at the wondrous works of God from creation on, he has done all these glorious, wonderful things uh, for his people. We must always do that. Remember God's work in general for people, right? The things he's done in history. But what we see Mary doing and what we need to, I think, become even better at is remembering what God personally does in our own lives. Not just the things we've heard about from long ago, but the things we see, the things we hear, the things we know by experience in our own dealings with God. And we need to seek to remember those things, to, to commit those things to our hearts and minds, our memories, so that we can call them back up. Because I will say this, if you will, rem if you will seek to remember the works of God in your life, it will fuel your faith later on. It will. Like, I think you see that happen in Mary's life, and you've probably seen it happen in your own life, that if you have ability to, to bring back to mind, bring back to your heart's attention the things that God, the ways you have seen God work in your own life in the past, when you face difficulties in the present, that's going to be a fuel for your faith. It's going to give you confidence and hope that God is at work, that he can carry me through these things. I want you to think about Mary and what was going to unfold in her life. You don't even have to get out of this chapter again, Luke chapter 2, like to see on Jesus' eighth day of life, they take him to Jerusalem to be circumcised in accordance with the law. And they, they see this man, Simeon, in the temple. And Simeon tells them something that I think also would have lodged in Mary's uh, mind and heart in those early days of uh, his life, of Jesus' life. Simeon, if you look at verse 34 and 35, he tells this mother of this newborn son, verse 34, he says to her, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And so he is telling her, and she doesn't totally know what this is going to look like yet, but he's saying someday this child of yours is going to be, he's appointed for a sign that is opposed, which we know ultimately to be the cross of Jesus, where, where there's going to be some immense suffering that's going to come to your son. There's going to be opposition to him, but he also tells Mary there's going to be like a soul that, or a sword that goes through your own soul. 
Like that you're going to see this. You're going to witness this. You're going to watch this happen, this sign that is opposed to him. And that really did take place. You read through the rest of Jesus' life and Luke and the other accounts of Jesus' life. At the end of Jesus' life, his earthly life, he is crucified. He's not just worshipped and glorified like he was there in Bethlehem. He is, uh, he is hung upon a cross. He is beaten. He's mocked. And he suffers the wrath of God in our place for our sins. And Mary was there. Like she was watching it happen, watching her son suffer in our place and suffer in her place. But I think, if I had to get into the mind of Mary, I think that in that moment of watching her son be crucified, I can't help but think that the things that she treasured up in her heart from back in Bethlehem are, are now coming back up to the surface. She can recall, yes, like there was an angel that God sent to tell me that this is the Son of God. There was angels that visited that proclaimed that he would bring great joy for all the people somehow. And she may not have totally understood it, but she had seen how God gave her a child as a virgin, how God had been at work in sending these messengers and confirming that her son really was the Son of God. And she saw decades worth of these things that aren't recorded for us. But I think that she was taking those things, those experiences of God that she'd witnessed and treasured up, and she was applying them. She was letting those become fuel for her faith even as she watched her son die upon the cross. And the same should be true of us. I, I think it would be wise of us, it would be instructive for us to follow her example that when we see God do things in our own lives, when we observe him work in certain ways, that we try to commit those to memory. That we try to remember those things so that we can recall them and let them fuel our faith later in life. And if I was to ask you to make a list, I bet many of you could, if you were unexplainable other than him doing it. It was helpful for me this week just to, to revisit things in my own life uh, in light of this text and think about, I remember when we were newlyweds, uh, having a couple who did not even barely know us yet and didn't know of financial need we were in, pay our rent one month when we had almost nothing to, to actually pay it with. Unbeknownst to us, they had paid it for us. I remember um, God providing a job for my wife when we were in a difficult financial spot and we were seeking him intently in prayer early on as newlyweds. I remember God in several different occasions there were sins that I would deal with that I thought I am never going to be able to be rid of these things. I'm never going to be able to find uh, obedience and godliness in this area or this area and I've seen God do it. I've seen him change me. I, I have seen God, when we had, my family had a difficult ministry experience out of seminary, God led us faithfully to this church and to this congregation. I'm thankful to God for that. Uh, for how he led us here through a really difficult time. I, I have I've seen how God has surrounded my wife and I uh, with friends that care for us when we've had times of grief uh, and carried us through things that we could not have gone through on our own. I have witnessed the work of God in my own life. And it is good for me to recount those things. And I would encourage you to take time today or this week to do that same thing, to do that same exercise of thing. What are the ways I have seen God work in my life 
the things I have seen him do, the prayers I have heard, I've seen him answer in my life. And it could be a gift, to, it could be a Christmas gift to your future self, if you want to think of it that way. Uh, to, to take time to write down, I have seen God do this, and I witnessed God do this. I, I think that it would be a helpful practice for you to do, is to try to purposely remember those things from the past, and then as they come up in the future, make note of them somehow. Try to have some way by which you record the things that God has done in your life so that you can bring them back up later when your faith is not as strong and it's not as naturally arising within you. Those things can be instructive to you to fuel your faith. And so we're to treasure these things up, but treasure is not just to be held somewhere is to be spent it's to be used right treasure does nobody any good if it's just sitting in a treasure chest somewhere and never actually spent never shared with people and so I, I think from this text we see that we're not just to remember the works of God but the 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 outflow of that is to recount the works of God to remember them for your own sake, but to recount them for the sake of other people. And so you see the shepherds doing that, right? They, in the moment, they've heard these wonderful things, they've seen the heavens open up and these angels there, they quickly go re start recounting that, telling people, you will not believe this, what we just saw, and they start telling it and telling it and telling it and telling it. But I think we can know from this text too that Mary did the same thing. That she didn't just store it away for herself, but she stored it there so that she could tell other people about it. So that she could spread the good news herself about her son. I want you to think for a second, how do we even know what happened there in Bethlehem? Like, how do we know that he was laid in a manger? How do we know these things? How do we know these details in such vivid, uh, with such vivid imagery that, that Luke uses here? The angelic visit and these shepherds coming to visit, of them having no room in the inn, those things. How do we know that? I think, this is somewhat speculative, but my guess is that we have it because Luke, the, the man who God used to write this record, actually talked to Mary about it. That, that an aging Mary, long after her son had been crucified and resurrected and ascended, she was still alive and ministering to people. And I, my guess is that Luke talked to her and said, can you tell me about what happened when your son was born? And she did. And she, she recounts it. She tells him what took place. And so now what she has shared, these things that she remembered, weren't just for her own sake, to remember as she stood at the cross, but these things that she saw God do, she shared with others, and now has been passed down so millions, if not billions of people down through time could hear the story of how God provided her son. The things that God did in the sending of her son Jesus into our world. She recounted the works of God. She didn't just remember them. And I would encourage us to do the same thing. To not just remember and tuck away for our own sake the works that God's done, but to have them ready to actually tell people. We should be people as Christians who brag about God. Who say, whether it's in small things or extraordinary things, can I tell you about what God's done for me recently? Or can I tell you the story of what God did for me long ago in my life? You will never believe it. And we, we should be people who aren't just treasuring up like some buried treasure in our mind, these things that God's done, but we should have them on our tongues ready to tell people. There's a power in personal testimony that I think we underestimate sometimes. 
or when we tell people the undeniable things we have seen and witnessed with our own lives, God can use those things to have immense effect upon the hearers. And so I want you to think about that, especially as we come to Christmas, as you have opportunity maybe to be around loved ones or friends, or as you have time with your kids and grandkids, think about what could I recount whether it's from long ago in my life or from recently in my life, what are things that I could recount of how God has dealt with me? That ways that God has helped you when you were hurting, when you were discouraged, when you were downcast, when you were defeated, when you were doubting, uh, when you were struggling with certain sins in your life. Tell about how he helped you, how he was present in your life. We should do this with believers. We should do this with unbelievers. We should tell our kids or grandkids if God's blessed us with those I would encourage you to even consider sharing them in context of your life group or sharing them in context of our worship service if you're a member here of our church. I want us to be a church. Our pastors want us to be a church that's recounting the works of God, that's in real time sharing, man, God has done this. I've seen God do this in my life. I mentioned this in closing. Yesterday, I uh, had the privilege. It was my uh, grandfather's 80 let me see, 86th birthday, I think. And my kids and I, we did a Zoom call with him. It's part of our things we're trying to do uh, for Advent. With hindsight, like at, we called it interviewing an older saint. Uh, we asked if we could call up my grandma and grandpa on Zoom. And that was one of the sweetest things I have done in a long time uh, with my kids. I don't know if they appreciated it as much as I did, but it was wonderful. Like to ask them and get to hear my, or watch my children, hear my grandparents tell them together in this way. God helped us in this way. But what moved me more than anything was I asked, I had my kids ask, or maybe I asked, I don't remember, what historical things do you remember the most? Uh, Nana, we call them Nana and Papa. What, what do you remember the most uh, from your life? And I was expecting him to say, you know, when I was a little boy, I remember when World War II ended, or I remember when we landed on the moon, or something like that. Um, and Caleb could testify to this. My grandpa, and I didn't know if he, what he would say, he said, you know, what I want you to know is like the best thing that I can remember in my life is when I put my faith in Jesus. And like I just about started crying right when I heard him say that because he knew what should truly be recounted, what should truly be remembered in his heart was not how God worked out in the world to different people way out there, but how God had saved him how God had met him as this young boy in the hills of Kentucky and he heard the good news of Jesus and placed his faith in him. He wanted my kids, he wanted people, anybody who will hear to, to hear him recount how Jesus has changed him. And I think that we need to be people who do the same, that we're re remembering the work of God, whether it's in bringing us to faith initially or carrying us along, and we need to be quick to recount those things and brag on our God, brag on our Savior Jesus. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray for you.